rest of us, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We will be in verses 3 through 5 this morning, but we'll begin by reading verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll start in verses 1 through 2. This is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Peter, who is one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, is writing this letter most likely in the early 60s of the first century, and he's writing to mostly Jewish Christians who are identified by Peter as exiles or pilgrims there, who because of persecution that began in Jerusalem have now been scattered to these provinces which are now in modern-day Turkey. And Peter calls these Christians who had been persecuted and scattered, he calls them elect and chosen by God in verses 1 and 2, if you saw that. And they were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. We went into that deeply last week. And as we did discuss last week, as these Christians were being persecuted by the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem and were about to undergo severe persecution, from Nero in Rome, Peter wanted them to know that although they were not chosen by the world, they were chosen by God. And verse 2 says that this was a work of the Holy Spirit who had separated them from the world and He was sanctifying them for obedience to Jesus Christ in the midst of their difficult circumstances. And that's really what a Christian is. If you wanted to define what a Christian is, they are ones who have been chosen by God, set apart in faith, in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of glorifying God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. We've been chosen by God. We've been called out of the world. And the Holy Spirit is working in us so that we would be those who would be glorifying God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. We're different. We're different than we were. We're different than the world. Our marching orders aren't internal, they're external. They're from the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's redeemed our hearts, who's changed us from the inside out. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of a believer, teaching us how to love and obey Jesus Christ, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, and quite often using difficult circumstances and allowing difficult circumstances in our life so that we would know how to love and obey Jesus unlike the world around us. And really, that is what the Christian is. We are chosen by God, and we love and obey Jesus. And so Peter's writing to a group of Christians who have been suffering persecution, and at the end of his introduction to them, at the end of verse 2, what does Peter say? He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. The word grace is a Greek word in, in the Greek, as many of you know, is, is charis, which is where we get our word for charity. And the idea behind that word of grace is goodwill and loving kindness and favor towards someone. And the word also attached to it is the word peace. It says grace and peace. Well, peace is irene, which comes from the verb meaning to join. And what do you mean by to join? How does joining, what does that have to do with peace? It means two parties are united. 
And so there's safety and security and prosperity and harmony between two individuals that have come together. And so as Peter is relaying that although these believers have received no grace and no peace and are actually hated by those in, around them in the world, and they're being persecuted and killed, and they're being dispossessed of all their possessions, they have no lands, they have no homes, they have nothing really to call that their, their own uh, is their own anymore. Peter wanted the, to know with certainty that they had grace and peace with God. And that is the contrast in Peter's mind as he gets into verse 3, which is where we are this morning, where he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept for you in heaven who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Pretty good for a fisherman, huh? And so Peter just busts into the praise of God, amen? And as you can see, the reasons for these believers to praise God in the midst of their current circumstances are many in Peter's mind, and actually he lists seven of them if you kind of count them out. I don't know what the significance of that is, but there's always lists of seven all out through the whole Bible. And so he gives them seven reasons to praise God in the midst of trying circumstances. Are any of you going through trying circumstances this morning? Perhaps you don't have your home and your livelihood taken away and people you know are killed for the gospel. But nevertheless, are any of you going through tr trying circumstances? Peter lists seven. He says, well, gr just I'll just list them off. Great mercy a new birth, a living hope, the resurrection, an inheritance, the shielding of God's power, a coming salvation. This is rich. These are all reasons for believers to praise God in the midst of whatever life brings them. And so Peter, in verse 3, he starts by saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the original language there, it doesn't say be to the, it doesn't say be to. It just says praise God and Father. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's not saying, hey, just a general, hey, praise God, everybody. He's saying, praise God. It's more like a directive. He's saying, you, praise God. Is that the counsel you normally give someone who's suffering and has lost everything? And that is the total contrast of what you see these apostles constantly speaking into the lives of believers. He says, this is going on, but this is the greater reality. You're suffering here and you've lost it. And, and I feel like sometimes, so many times, we as Christians, we spend so much time trying to be sympathetic towards one another in our suffering and our circumstances. And I think that is good to have compassion and kindness towards one another. We don't want to be mean, right? Amen. But what a believer needs in suffering is truth that surpasses their fading suffering. Because the truth that God has for them is going to surpass their suffering. And they need that. And it's important for us to encourage them in that. Yes, put their arms around. And that is difficult when you yourself are struggling. Amen? And so Peter needs... Uh, 
Peter, uh, Peter's readers need to know the reasons in the midst of their suffering to praise God. And so Peter says to them, praise God, and he gives them seven reasons. And here's the first one in verse 5. Well, actually in verse 3, excuse me, you wish. <laughs> Someone's like, what? No, praise God because verse 3, second half, in his what? Great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's three of them there. But the first reason that Peter gives us to praise God is because of God's great mercy. His great mercy. Mercy means kindness or goodness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted joined with a desire to actually help them. Kindness or goodness towards the miserable and afflicted joined with the will to actually help them out. That's what mercy is. God is merciful. By His very nature, He is a merciful God. That is who He is. He didn't learn it. That is, it comes from His being. God desires to help those who are afflicted and are miserable and are suffering. It is His nature. Did you know that? As I've been reading uh, and studying with the Christian Aid Center, um, we've been going through Genesis, and, and I just all of a sudden you just start reading these stories, and you'll find Hagar. She she's kind of given Sarah a hard time, and then this is back in Genesis 16, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, Sarah turns around, and she just treats her horribly, and so she's by herself, she's ostracized, she's alone, and it says that the angel of the Lord came to her in the middle of her distress. You know, Ishmael, her son. Later on, they all, they, she and her son Ishmael, they get kicked out, and they're all alone, and the boy's dying of thirst. They're all just kind of alone, and the Lord hears their cry in Genesis 21 and comes and rescues them in the midst of their distress. And you keep going. Leah, remember Jacob loved Rachel, but he really didn't love her sister Leah. And it says that God looked, when he saw that Leah was unloved, he made it to where she could have kids. And just, God just looks on with compassion. He has mercy upon the individuals that are hurting. And it's over and over and over and over and over in Scripture. It is God is a merciful God. And we know that Moses describes God as a merciful God. He calls Him a merciful God in Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Paul in Ephesians 2.4 says that God is rich in mercy. He's not poor in mercy. He is rich in mercy. And God's kind of rich is kind of a rich that we don't even understand. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in his prophecy, prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, describes God as having tender mercies. Tender mercies because of the tender mercies of our God. Jesus in Matthew 9 13, rebuking the Pharisees for not knowing the nature of God. He said, but go and learn what this means, guys. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. God is merciful. He looks on the afflicted with compassion, with mercy. That's the nature of our God. When Jesus comes on the scene... 
we see the mercy of God in action as He heals many. It says He healed many with diseases and sickness and evil spirits and gave sight unto the blind. If you remember John the Baptist, he was in prison. He's getting bewildered there, I think is in Luke 7 somewhere. And he says, you know, hey, is, are you the real deal or we should look for another? And Jesus says, what did I just, what is, what did I do? I've done all these things. I healed people, delivered them from spirits. The blind are seeing. What does it say the Messiah is going to be like? It's going to be like that. God could have revealed himself in so many different ways, but he decided to be merciful towards people, to reach out to them in their affliction. He had compassion upon them. This was a practical demonstration by the Lord Jesus of God's mercy upon man. And here Peter is saying that you have reason to praise God because he's had great mercy upon you. Now, what mercy is Peter talking about? Because their circumstances stink. Any of your circumstances stink? No. Okay, everybody's great. We're in America. <laughs> Wrong audience. Of course they do. They were currently suffering and they were afflicted. Any of you suffering, afflicted in various ways? Peter isn't talking about their current circumstances. Notice God didn't alleviate their current sufferings. Does that mean God is not merciful? Good question. Now, Peter was speaking to something greater than their circumstances, an affliction that was even greater than the persecution they were experiencing, their root affliction. Their root affliction was that they were dead in their sin they were totally lost and without hope, and God showed great mercy towards them. Now, those who are Christ have experienced God's great mercy. We have a personal experience with God on that. That is a work that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer when we are convinced of who we are in light of who He is and how merciful He's been towards us. And some of you this morning are listening to what I'm talking about, and you're going, I have no clue. I've just churched it my whole life. And, and you have yet to know of the unfathomable need for God's mercy upon you because you are spiritually dead. And I don't say that flippantly. I speak as one who has been. And you are here this morning, as we all were at one time, just going to church. But as you hear the Word of God spoken, and as the Holy Spirit begins to speak to your heart and pierce your heart, you're going to begin to sense guilt and shame over what you have done and who you've been and who you are. And the world tells you, no, you need to tell yourself you're fine. And the Holy Spirit says, no, that's me convicting you of your sin. Why? so that you will need, you realize your own need for a Savior, so that you will be driven to God's great mercy for you. And in that, you are freed. As Jesus said to those in the church of Laodicea in Revelation three seventeen through 18, you say that I am rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize. See, this is God's view of them. We have our own estimation of ourselves, but God looks at them and says, Jesus looks at them and says, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and naked and blind. I counsel you, Jesus says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich 
and, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He desires to be merciful to them. And it's the Holy Spirit who wakes us up to the fact that we are, we're dead. And then the Lord comes in and He clothes us. He heals us. The spiritually dead don't know they are dead until God awakens them to the fact that they are. Have you ever seen a dead body? They don't respond. It's graphic, I know, but they don't respond to anything. And that's what we are like towards God. And Paul paints this picture in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, where Paul, speaking to the Ephesian church, says, as for you, you were dead. Well, what's the symptom of that? In your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is that now at work of those who are disobedient, the way things always have been. And all of us, notice Paul isn't just saying you guys, he's saying all of us also lived among them at one time. This is how we were all brought into the world. We were dead, spiritually dead. How does that manifest itself? Well, we're gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's what ruled us. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving the wrath of God. And this is what we were before God's great mercy upon us. Amen. Spiritually dead, we were following Satan, following the patterns laid out in this world and of our own flesh, awaiting the wrath of God, enemies of God. We were hopeless of a cure like a leper, like a blind man. There's nothing within us that could cure ourselves, and we're all lepers and we're all blind. We don't have the cure. Something from outside had to come in. Something pure, undefiled had to come in and cleanse us and make us new. And that is what life was like apart from Jesus Christ before He awakened our hearts, hopeless. The future that awaits this world is death and judgment and wrath. We have no remedy for ourselves. We don't even realize it's going on apart from God awaking us up to it. We're dead. There's nothing that mankind can do to remedy themselves, ourselves, and the answer has to come from outside. And that's why verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 happens. What happens? But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in what? Mercy. Made us what? Alive with Christ. Even when we were what? Dead in our transgressions. It is by what you've been saved? By grace. Some of you are dead this morning, spiritually dead, and the Lord is waking you up in your hearts, and you are realizing, God, I need your great, great mercy upon my life. Have mercy upon me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God is alive and active. Do not ignore that. Respond to him. God reached out into our leprous, dead state 
because of his great mercy. God is a merciful God. Do you know that? That is his very nature. What did his great mercy do? What was the result of his great mercy? How did that impact us? What did it do? Back to 1 Peter 1, in verse 3 it says, We have reason to praise God because in his great mercy he has what? Given us new birth. We were made alive. We just read it in Ephesians chapter 2. We were born again is another phrase that the scriptures use. We were born again. He has given us new birth. This wasn't a patch. We didn't need an upgrade or an update. We didn't need to be stitched up or to have a part replaced. We needed to be totally reborn. Fatal flaw in version 1.0. Needed to be reborn. We were dead. We, we needed life that was not in us, spiritual life. And because of God's great mercy, He gave us new life, which Peter calls the new birth here. We were raised from the dead spiritually. Now, how does this new birth happen in a person? How, do, how does a person become born again? This is described best in John chapter 3. Many of you know there, you can flip over there and kind of peruse as I'm reading. But Jesus is speaking in John chapter 3 to a guy named Nicodemus, who is a prominent religious Jewish leader. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh and bones is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus has no clue what Jesus is talking about. You're talking to a guy 2,000 years ago that is a Jewish male rabbi. You've got to be born again. And he goes, so I've got to go like, be born again through my mom again? What's, what are you talking about? And Jesus goes, you're a teacher of Israel and you have no clue what I'm talking about? I mean, Jesus is schooling the teachers of Israel. Pretty humiliating. And so to paint the picture so he gets the idea of what he's talking about, Jesus beckons back to something that they would understand. And the picture is out of Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, in which the children of Israel who were in rebellion towards God were being bitten by a plague of poisonous snakes. Now, I don't like snakes. Not unless poisonous snakes and being bitten by them and, and going to die. That's something that, that and sharks, no thank you. And as a result of being bit and, 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 and dying, they were dying, they came to Moses and they said, hey, we've got a situation going on. And, and as a result, they acknowledged their sin and God's judgment upon them and, and, and looked to the means that God provided to deliver them from the death that they were going to, that was going to happen. They're bit by a snake. They're looking for deliverance. How do we get out of this? What's the remedy? We've sinned against God. We know it's God's judgment upon us. What's going to How do we have, how do we find the mercy of God? How do we get out of this? And so God told Moses, I want you to take Make a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on a pole. How many of you are in a medical field? You know what that is, right? You have the picture of the serpent on the pole. So that's where this, is, this comes. That's uh, where this comes from, right? 
And as they looked upon that bronze serpent that was raised in the desert for deliverance from death, they were physically healed. Pretty wild, huh? This is a picture that Jesus was given Nicodemus of the spiritual condition of mankind. That we are under the judgment of God. We've all been bitten. We have sin in our lives. We are sinners by nature. And we are under the judgment of God awaiting wrath. We are spiritually dead and unable to help ourselves and uncure ourselves and cure ourselves. And unless God does something, we're doomed. He did something. He put a snake on a pole. He took his son and nailed him to the cross and lifted him up that whoever looks upon him in faith for deliverance shall be saved, delivered. That's what the gospel is. That is his act of mercy towards mankind, his own son, the innocent, the untainted, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God for the guilty. And that those who look upon him in faith shall be delivered from the punishment. And what happens is when we respond to God prompting us of our own guilt and our sin, and we realize we've been bitten, and we call out to God for mercy. He does something within our hearts. He changes us. We become born again. As we look on faith to Jesus who was lifted up on a cross like a bronze serpent on the pole, God saves us. And by God's grace, we are regenerated. We are made new. And that's why I'm saying that Christians understand the mercy of God. That is something the Lord does in the heart of a person. And if you've been churching it your whole life, and you've never known that, you've never been convicted, and you're convicted now, cry out to God, respond to His mercy upon you through Jesus Christ. You will have new birth. And then when you are born again, you are now awake and aware to the things of God. You can respond to God. You can hear His voice. And like a newborn father uh, follows their parents or their father, now we hear His voice and we begin to follow in His footsteps. We begin to hear the things of the Spirit, the things we could never hear before. We're Christians. And our example is Jesus Christ lived out, His Son, and we follow Him. And this glorifies God. This is new life working in and through us. We find out that His kingdom is nothing like the kingdom we grew up in. It's different. The way to gain your life is to lose your life. The greatest in the kingdom is the what? The least, the servant of all. That is not our kingdom. That's not the kingdom of man. That is the kingdom of God. Totally different. King of kings, Lord of lords, comes down and humbles himself in a manger dies a death at the hands of his own creation, that we would be co-heirs with him. And you get into this deep, rich theology, but the new birth is something that God did to you when you were dead and you responded in faith. He made you alive by grace through faith. And this new birth leads a person to the next thing, the reason to praise God is a living hope. A living hope. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into what? A living hope. 
the result of God's salvation towards you, the result of being born again, of having this new birth, is that you have a living hope. How this world lacks hope. And the things we hope for, they fade. And that is really another reason to praise God. You have been given new birth into a living hope. And this means it's an undying hope. That's what it means. It's living. It's undying is, is the idea. It's eternal. An eternal hope, an everlasting hope, a hope that doesn't peter out after, you know, 200,000 miles. Continues. Now, to those believers that Peter's writing to, they need to be reminded of God's great mercy upon them, and they were given a new birth, and that that new birth resulted in a living hope, an unending, eternal hope, because the hope of this world was fading before their eyes. And when a believer is suffering, the antidote is hope, living hope. A hope that surpasses their circumstances. Notice that Peter didn't say, hey, it's going to be okay. You're not going to get persecuted. You're not going to lose your families. You're not going to lose your homes. You're not going to do that. Did Peter lie to them? No, he gave them a truth that surpassed their circumstances. Fix your eyes on truth, church. And this is the contrast to the world around them, which has nothing but a dying, dead, fading, corroding, rotting hope. This world knows only dying hopes, John MacArthur said. I was looking for an illustration, as I am master at illustrations. I think I have one every 17 messages. Psalm 49 speaks to this world's dying hope, and I want to read it for you. You can flip there and read along if you want. Might be up there. Yeah. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, both high and low, that would be us, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb with the harp. I will expound my riddle. And here we go. Why should I fear when evil days come? When wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. You could never, all the money in the world could never buy eternal life. You ever, you know, people with a lot, a lot of money and extra time, what are they trying to do? They're getting into these weird chambers trying to expand their life. They're trying to do things, right? Freeze their brains, whatever they're doing. Just read the verse. It ain't happening. No one can redeem the life of another or give, give to God a ransom for them. Verse 8, the ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. Verse 10, for all can see that the wise die. How many of you are very wise in your diet? Guess what? I have news for you. You're going to die. 
probably a less, little less sooner than others, maybe. And that the foolish and the senseless also perish, probably quicker, leaving their what? Their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who, what? Trust in themselves, the dead people, the walking dead. And of their followers who approve their sayings. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. Wow. But the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their form, that is speaking of those who trust in themselves, will decay in the grave far from the, their princely mansions. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when their splendor of their house is increased, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like beasts that perish. So, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of man, no matter where you are on the scale, is a hopeless, is a hopeless endeavor. And that is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And again, once again this week, I hope you are encouraged. <laughs> a kingdom that deceives and leads people to think that they live when they truly are dead. And they're running around in their future tombs. That's the picture that God paints of the world. And it's important to know His picture. Not that we don't go to work, not that we don't pay our mortgages and all that stuff, but to realize the perspective that God has on all these things. Amen. The kingdom of this world is hopeless, but the believer whose hope is in Christ is secure. Peter's readers especially needed to hear this in the midst of their suffering, persecution and hardship and losing their families and their homes and their possessions and their health and their finances and eventually their lives. They had a living hope. Church, you have a living hope. How do we know? What's the proof of this living hope? Verse 3, in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We received our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is in the resurrected Jesus Christ. If Jesus never rose from the dead, church, the grave if he never rose from the grave, if that tomb is still, he was still there, he would have been in the same predicament all of us are in, a dead hope, powerlessness over death. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, in verse 17 through 18, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, they're lost. And if only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. Paul's Paul's going, hey, if Christ has not been raised, what are we doing suffering? Why don't we just act like everybody else? Why why, Why do we continue living holy lives? Why do we live in fear of God? Why do we give? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we gather together? Why don't we just party? Why not just give in and live like the rest? What's the point? And that's what this world says. What's the point? But but Paul goes on to verse 20 and he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. That's what the apostles were. They were eyewitnesses of that, 500 others. They testified of it. The world has changed because of it. There's evidences of the resurrection. We have a living hope. And Jesus, speaking to Martha just before raising her brother Lazarus from the dead in John 11, says in the beginning of verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. What is he talking about? Your physical body? No, he's talking about eternal life. You will live. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? Lazarus was dead in the grave for four days. There was no hope of him walking out of that thing. No hope whatsoever. But Jesus, the resurrection and the life, said to Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? He came walking out. Jesus is talking to Martha about real life there, eternal life, real hope that is an undying hope. And again, in John 14, 19, Jesus says to his disciples, before long, this world is not going to see me anymore. That's us. We don't see him anymore. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. We will have eternal life. Our hope is beyond the grave. We have hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says of our hope, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. How many of you feel like you're rudderless in this life and the circumstances are just sweeping you over with sorrow and you're getting pushed to the left and to the right? And wherever the current circumstances take you, Hebrews says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, behind the veil, the Holy of Holies, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. The hope we have is in Jesus. He is in the presence of God, and we are tied to Him. We are tethered to Him. Our soul is anchored to Him. He is the anchor of our soul. He is our living hope. We are here. He is there, but He is the anchor of our soul, firm and secure. Brothers and sisters, God chose you. He set you apart through His Holy Spirit that you would love and obey Jesus Christ. He has had great mercy upon you. He has given you new birth. He is giving you a living hope, an undying hope. And that is Son is now the anchor of your soul. He is alive. And no matter how the waves crash on the life 
of a believer and the storms rage, and no matter how violent this world churns against you, you are His. And you've been brought into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we'll stop there because I have 15 more pages of notes. Verse 4 says, And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, this inheritance is kept for you in heaven who are shielded by the power of God until Jesus comes back, basically. So Peter, in the first couple of verses, has a lot to say to his church who's suffering. And the perspective is astounding, and it's food for our soul. You have reason to praise God, church. As the guys and I were looking at this on Tuesday mornings, Nick and Marcus and Arthur, we were looking at this, we, we whiteboarded all these things. I mean, just look in chapter 1. What is our understanding of what an apostle is? What about God's elect? What about exiles? Um, what does it mean to be chosen? What is foreknowledge? What is the sanctifying work of the Spirit? What is obedience to Jesus Christ? What does sprinkling His blood mean? What does grace and peace mean? What is, what is great mercy? What is a new birth? What is living hope? What is the resurrection? What is an inheritance that can never spoil or fade? What, is being, what does it mean to be kept? What does it mean to be shielded by faith? What is God's power? What is this coming salvation? That's just verse, first five verses. Do we know these things as Christians? Do we know them? I'm asking. The answer is no, right? Why, why are we going so slowly? Because we need to be anchored on truth like this. We just want to read over and go fast. Go deep. And you can go fast too, by the way. I don't care. But meditate on these things. They're yours in Christ Jesus. These are things that God has done for you. You need them. You need to know who He is. You need to know your God. He's revealed Himself to you. All the things, it's like we're princes and princesses of a king and we're, we're little kids. We have no understanding of the kingdom and the vastness of the things that we have inherited by grace. And God is growing us up in these things and, and teaching us in this lifetime so that when we step on the other side of eternity, as we grab our inheritance, as we begin to walk in, we are awakened to that fact. And so dig deep now. Let the Spirit speak to your heart and be encouraged, church. No matter what's coming our way, no matter what's going on in the world, this is not our home, but we're in this world. And how we live here, we need to um, have the perspective that God would have for us, that we would glorify God in these days. Amen? Lord God, we lift up your church. We thank you so much, Lord, that you have brought us into your kingdom, into your family by your good grace, and thank you that you've sent your Son and that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And for someone here today who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ, now is the time. Respond to His mercy in your heart. Cry out to Him. Say, I've been bitten, and I believe that Jesus, you will save me. Turn from your sins, believe, and follow Him, and let someone know about it.
And Lord God, we ask this morning that you would please put these things so deeply into our hearts that when the storms come and the, and, and, and the, the seas rise and they go over our homes, it seems, Lord, that we would stand upon the rock. You are our firm foundation, Lord. We stand on no other. We love you this morning. We give you praise and honor for all that you've done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.